0: One, one, two, one, my chat, yo Mm. Let me get a mic Yes, 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 yes Yes. I know, I know it's been a while, I know, I know Y'all miss me and I miss you too but you know we ain't got to worry about that. We're gonna be we're gonna be dropping at a more consistent clip, more consistent rate, um, for the foreseeable future. I, I can explain. I promise you. You just got to give me some time. But let me let me tell you what you're listening to first. For those of y'all who haven't listened to any of this, you are listening to Grio Talks, where we're generating realistic intellectual output together, and you are hanging with your boy Nels. And you know, people call me Renell People call me Nels. It's whichever one you want to call. All right, whatever, whichever one you want to call me, I have no problem with that at all. And beyond that, I don't have much to say. So we, we're gonna get it. We're gonna get it cracking. We're gonna get right to it. Um, let's talk about how I'm feeling today at this at this present point in time. I'm feeling I'm feeling okay. I'm feeling okay. Um, you know, spring break is is here upon us. You know, I've been I've been super busy. Um, you know, with just what I've had to do at work. You know, I'm, I, and I'm coaching. I'm head coaching now with uh, girls flag football. We're we're doing okay. Started the season 0 and 3, but we played against really competitive playoff teams, which was more or less what I what I wanted as a coach for our schedule. I wanted us to have the opportunity to play against competitive teams so we could figure out the best ways for us to win. And it appears that we we are on the right track. We're on a two game winning streak. We're presently two and three. We've beaten two playoff teams, and you know we're we're making it work, and I'm really excited about that. I love coaching flag football. The girls are super attentive. They get after it. They give me 125%, so this is like my relaxation decline into what will be football from spring all the way through fall, because it's spring, summer, fall for football, so it's nice to have that. That time to to myself as I figure things out, and I learn a lot about myself too. Coaching the girls, not just on a schematic level in football, but also on a personal level as well. I become a better I become a better coach with those girls, so I always appreciate the opportunity. Definitely different from coaching basketball um, during this time at Fort Myers. It's not as uh, stressful. I think is the word that that we're looking for here. But you know, things things are cool. You know, my birthday is in a couple of weeks and my mother's birthday is the day before mine. For those of y'all who don't know, April 11th, April 12th, you know, that was almost my birthday twin, But I decided to be a little selfish and, you know, I miss her. And I think it's going to be really rough to go through this birthday cycle without her. It's going to be the first one. So I don't know what to expect on that day. Honestly, I don't know how I'm going to operate, but, you know, we're going to get through it and we'll figure that out when we get there. So, you know that's how I'm feeling. I'm 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 in a good place, you know, uh, like I've said before, it's like waves, right? You got to ride the wave, get your surfboard and figure it out. And you know, I'm I'm in a in that upswing, you know, the, the wave is up. And per usual, you got to expect at some point for there to be that down again, but I'm expecting it and I'm ready to to go with it and we'll make it work. I am more focused on my health. I got, you know, my health insurance and everything taken care of. So I have appointments to set with my primary care physician as well as my dermatologist because I have this weird growth going on. Um, it looks like eczema, but, you know, I'm, I'm taking care of my health and I'm, I'm, I'm sharing this because, you know, I believe more black men need to address their their health. And, and it's not just black men. It's men in general. But black men in particular, I notice we do not do the things necessary to take care of ourselves or at least know what we have going on in health as well. So, you know, me turning 30, 35, I want to make sure that I'm in a good place. So, I'm definitely paying attention to that and also I'll be looking for a therapist too. So that that's going to be an interesting journey as well. I'm, I'm kind of looking forward to seeing where that goes also. So, we going we going to see. We going to see. But you know, that's that's how I'm feeling. That's where I'm at. So, we are on the last two episodes of the 1619 project. You know, I told you I was going to cover all six. And from there we're going to move on to, you know, some very interesting episodes. Of course we're going to have our regular grill talks episodes, but I want to introduce a new anthology series as well. We'll start with the with the Haitian Revolution because you know a couple of listeners and subscribers have asked for that. So that'll be what we'll start with the anthology series and we'll go from there. So the anthology is just going to, you know, cover Big moments in history, more in particular like African history, African-American history, Caribbean history. So if you have any suggestions, you know, I'm always willing to to listen. So those of y'all who have my direct contact information, utilize it. And those who have the Grill Talks Instagram, G-R-I-O-T Talks, you send me a DM and and we can talk about it. All right. But I'm looking forward to, to seeing how that will go as well. I think the stories are going to be really, really cool. So let's talk about 1619 Project. So the last two episodes, episode five and six, we're going to be on five first, episode that is titled Fear. And the direction was a direction that I knew at some point it was going to have to take, which is talking about, you know, just the fear that has been placed over the African-American population here in the United States, and not just the fear that's placed over, but, you know, it also talks about the fear that the African-American community has itself of the fear put over it, so it, it definitely covered the aspect from two different realms, two different perspectives, and it got really deep, and I really liked the layout, and, and I've said this about every episode, like, I I have to admit that, you know, the, the 1619 project itself um, that is in the New York Times is really, really good, but the in the book itself by Nicole Hannah-Jones is really good. The collection of essays to read, it's phenomenal, but to see it visually, that same information presented in your face, especially in an entertaining documentary such as this, definitely eye-opening. And if you haven't watched it yet, like I've said before, I highly advise that you do. I highly advise that you do. It's, it's, it's important for you to watch it. And, and it's not so much for the entertainment value. It is more for the historical aspect. Learn to learn and understand where not only where has the African-American community come from, but where it presently is and how much of this information has been hidden from us. But fear. So a quote, you know, I, I always take a quote from from every episode and, and I love sharing them. So, you know, one of the quotes that that caught my attention stated black people's everyday fear of white violence with itself was the product of another type of fear, white fear, white fear of black progress, prosperity and freedom. This is an interesting concept, right, because there is a fear, right? There's a fear from African-American population on from white violence. And then the white violence itself comes from a different type of fear, whether it's an ignorant fear, whether it's a purposeful fear, there's fear there on both sides. So it was interesting to see that as the cornerstone of the, I I, kind of try to find, you know, not just the premise itself, but I kind of try to find a thesis statement for each episode, because once you find that thesis statement, which I thought this was it, the episode, to me, lays out so much cleaner. It, it does really read out like a historical transcript, which which is really cool. Historical transcript, historical writing. And once you can f- see the, the evidence and how the evidence stems from the thesis statement itself, it is really, really intriguing to see how it goes from the early days, especially from 1619 itself, all the way to present day and how those trends continue to permeate it's 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 mind-boggling right but in there and, and I don't want to share too much with you guys because I want you guys to watch it and come to your own conclusions but I do want to share highlights so to say or that that caught my attention that I thought was was good in terms of making sure that we understood the theme itself so one thing that they did was they had footage of Ahmad arbery who was being stopped like a routine stop in 2017 and he was he was being not even stopped he was parked on the side of the road and it appears that he was taking a nap or he was chilling in his car and you know a police officer came to speak to him and he was saying that he was being stopped because of just drug activity and violence that had stepped up in that particular area and you can see that he is a bit confrontational but the reason why he's being confrontational is because he wasn't bothering anybody he was in his car hanging out and he wasn't doing anything of that nature and you can see where you know his anxiety is coming from Right. And the police says something that was really interesting where he was saying, like, you know, the behavior that he's exhibiting is making him nervous. And when he gets nervous, you know, when police officers get nervous, that's where things kind of go left. I found that very eerie right? That was a very eerie thing that he said. And, and even in the stop, it was like, wow, he was already being targeted prior to the whole situation in the first place. So that was something that I saw that really caught my attention. They talked about like the connection from slavery to today's police violence and not just police violence, but also vigilante violence from just your average American citizen that occurs to the African American community. They, they also talked about, you know, how slavery was perceived by, you know, your, your classic white American society, which, you know, slavery was already seen as immoral on multiple levels. And, and these slave owners knew that at some point in time, a reckoning was going to come. I think it was Thomas Jefferson who said something to the extent of, if there is a God, there is something for us to pay for slavery, which, you know, that's, that's interesting that they, they said this, they knew the, the immoral, ways of slavery. However, they still couldn't turn away from the free labor. So that, that right there shows you the attitude of the times. I, I also was really intrigued at the fact that they talked about the Haitian Revolution and how the news of the revolution traveled, you know, across the world because, you know, this is the more, the not the more, this is the most profitable colony in that era right, in that colonial era, France was a power at the time, and the majority of their funding came from Saint-Domingue, which, you know, eventually would become Haiti in the Dominican Republic, and these situations occurring definitely struck fear into the slaveholders. They They were scared of that, right? There was a law, and this is how much they were fearful of it, They they understood that the reason why there was a revolt in the first place was because slaves in in Sinomang had a certain sense of freedom in particular roles, especially like mulattoes, and that definitely led to an understanding that we deserve more freedom. So in response, you had a place you had a city like Charleston where there was a law that free and enslaved black people were not allowed to share any expression of joy. Which is, which is crazy, right? Now, also to counter that, they tried to prevent freed slaves, or not even free slaves, runaway slaves. And this is where you had your slave patrols. Slave patrols started off as informal, right? But the governments, especially state governments, started sponsoring these slave patrols. And these slave patrols literally laid down the foundation for what we know as modern day policing, right? Which, you know, that is that is super, super interesting, that you, know, you can trace that back, right? There is someone by the name of uh, Jamel Roberson that they talk about as well. Jamel Roberson was a security guard for Manny's Blue Room in Robbins, Illinois, and he was shot by a police officer. And Roberson was working as a security guard and had the situation under control, but this officer who wasn't even in jurisdiction came in with an assault rifle and just shot the dude. And they talk about that. That was covered very well from a, a lot of different perspectives. So I found that super, I found that as super pivotal to getting the point across from this episode. They also talked about the phrase fearing for, you know, my life. I feared for my life, which is tends to be the terminology that police officers use because it is the get out of jail free card. If they feared for their lives, that essentially guarantees that they'll be found not guilty. And even if they are found guilty, they get the lightest sentence, which is rare. So they talked about that phrase. He feared for his life. She feared for his life. I feared for my life from an officer almost as a literal license to kill. So I would love for you guys to comment on that and tell me how you feel about that when you watch that portion of the episode. They concluded by saying that ultimately it was about power, right? The the, the fear factor was about formulating ways to keep Black America at the bottom of the totem pole. They didn't say that exactly, but that was kind of how I took it in layman's terms, right? They, they also discussed um anti-rioting bills and how protesting is now becoming a criminal act and we know that protesting is the language of the marginalized so taking that away the ability you know and that 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 almost falls into the bill of rights right like the the freedom of speech right you're taking that away and saying that someone can't protest something that they don't agree with and you're making it into a crime so that was that was intriguing to say the least and you know what I found really interesting about this episode. To so before I close it down and go to episode number six, I enjoyed how much this, how modern this episode was. It was it was a lot more contemporary than I gave it credit for. It, it definitely dealt with modern day issues, and although it provided a, an outlook and it provided background into where a lot of these situation stem from. What they did was they really focused in on what is happening now. Like this happened in the past, but it has evolved into this particular type of marginalization, right? We see this on a day-to-day. We're going to tell you where it's from, but this is also how it's permeating and how it's evolved and changed. So the episode, per usual, I thought was really good I can't say that this was one of the weaker episodes, like I said, about the last couple of episodes. And the only reason why I was saying, I think it was episode four, Capitalism, which still came with a lot of uh, information. You know, I, I can't say that any episode was literally weak. You know, I, I would say it's weaker. It was weak in comparison to the other episodes. But every single one of them is powerful and it's hard. Episode number six is talking about justice. I thought that this was a perfect way to end the documentary series with this episode. It brought everything full circle, right? It took it took from, you know, the first two episodes, right? It took from the first two episodes in terms of, you know, the struggle itself, right? Like, where did the struggle come from? How did we get to this point? I thought that the ability to be able to wrap everything up into one piece, especially episode number six, I thought was really, really good. It took from Democracy, which was episode one. It took from Race, episode two. It took from Music, three. Capitalism, four. Fear, number five. And they all folded together into justice, right? And you know, each one of them made sure to, while bringing in different stories, there was always one main story that they latched onto. And episode six was no different. With episode six, though, they focused on a place called Harris Neck, Georgia, but we're going to get to that, right? So episode six, you know, the the synopsis that I got, you know, was that Black America has fought hard for the little bit of justice that they, that they do have, right? And some will argue that there's no justice at all. Depends on who you ask, right? Many will point Civil Rights Act and a Black president as signs of that little bit of justice. However, again, some will argue that, you know, it's too little, too late. There needs to be more. So there is still a battle for justice. Right. Perfect example that they talked about is the racial wealth gap, you know, that cannot be ignored. That is a thing, you know, and one of the poignant facts that they threw out there is that, you know, the average white household has eight times the wealth of your average black household. And this this does build with generational wealth. Right. And, and the, you know, the, the crazy thing is, is that, you know, a lot of us still don't understand the concept of generational wealth revolving into keeping funds into the family as well as real estate. Right. Having transferable income. That can go from generation to generation, right? Which is why we're big now talking about life insurance, making sure that you have that for those that come after you, right? Making sure you have land, buy the land before you build the home so that way you can pass that on to your loved ones after the fact. And we just have not had the, I wouldn't even say we have not had the opportunity. We're just now doing it. And we're generations and generations behind. When you're talking about the race itself, right? There is... there's a massive gap, right? There is a a YouTube video that I saw about like a race and they had students stand at a finish line and it said, you know, if you're this particular type of student, you can take five steps forward. If you have both parents in a home, you can take another five steps forward. If you have this in your house, you can take 10 steps forward or whatever. And they just started adding a bunch of little things. And before you knew it, you had particular kids. Like he did this all the way up to the finish line. And you had kids who were literally like five feet away from the finish line. then you had other kids who were still at the finish line. So when he said, ready, set, go, I mean, obviously the kids who were near the finish line finished first. And that's that's essentially what we have here, you know, in in a lot of, you know, African-American homes, uh, especially, you know, in terms of like in terms of this foundational income, our generation is really the generation that's getting that started, you know, or our parents were the one that was getting that started and we're starting to experience the fruits of their labors, you know, as we get older. And unfortunately, you know, them leaving us is a thing that we're not prepared for. However, you know, what they are leaving behind for us is what's helping us to get on a better foot. And we're trying to do the same thing for our children and our grandchildren. But you have to realize you have families in America that's been doing this since the early 1900s, some even to the 1800s, some to the 1700s. I mean, if you look at some of these rich families, especially in the, in the Northeast, man, I mean, you, you got families that have been collecting generational wealth and passing it down for at least 200 years, right? And, and it sets you off on the right foot. Um, you know, (laughs) excuse the, the clock in the background. It is, it is 10 minutes to, it is 10 minutes to the hour here and, and it goes off. I completely forgot about that, but that's all right. It's a, it's a nice melody, right? But you know, you you have these families that they have just so much generational wealth and they have so much in, insider assistance that, you know, you got kids who automatically know like, oh yeah, my dad graduated from Penn, my granddad graduated from Penn and my great granddad graduated from Penn. So I'm going to the University of Pennsylvania. Or, you know, same thing with Harvard or Yale or Brown or Dartmouth. And, and you know, you're setting your kids up just for success. They already have a college fund. You know, they they already have the credit cards. And, and it's funny because I didn't learn these things until I moved to Fort Myers. And I started talking to, you know, some of my coworkers and some of the parents of the football players. And, you know, just hearing like. Yeah. You know, we set our kid up with a credit card and even though they haven't used it, that's what we pay our bills with. And, you know, granddad opened up a fund and we've just been adding to that fund every single year on his birthday. So I had a an athlete who presently is um, playing college football right now and he's on scholarship. At, at a particular school, and he has a seven hundred and forty credit score, and has never used his credit card, and has like fifty thousand dollars in the bank, and the grandpa is about to sign the 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 title for the home, and I think that's the correct way to put it to him. Right. So even if all else fails, and he can't figure it out after he gets out of school, or even if he can't figure it out in school, he has he has great credit. He has a starting, you know, fund to work with and he can always go back home because he has a home that's already paid for and taken care of that he can utilize how he needs to. Does he want to keep the house? Cool. Does he want to sell it? Cool. And, you know, that is how do you how do you beat that? You can't. Right. So, as I said, they talk about Harris Neck, Georgia, right, which was land lost through eminent domain. For those who don't know what eminent domain is, eminent domain is a a very simple concept to understand, right? Essentially what it means, it's the right for a government um, or government agents to take private property for public use as long as they pay back how much that land is worth. Now, here's what happened with Harris Neck, right? Harris Neck, um, these, these, Landowners lost their land and homes through eminent domain because of the war effort from World War II, specifically in 1942. Harrison, Georgia, had 72 families on 2,687 acres. The government gave them two weeks to get everything out. They dug up their cemeteries. They, they, they moved everything. They, they bulldozed the houses down. I mean, they had people leaving as they were bulldozing their homes down and you know they promised to give them funding and they never did it and you had people who had you had people who had land and could take care of the things they needed to take care of and they literally had it taken away from them which you know of course is unbelievable right now i'm not going to say too much of the story itself because they go individually into it as far as like families and, you know, how it affected them moving forward and how much they've wanted to fight for the land. And they even got arrested for the land. Right. But I, I would love for you guys to watch that and, and see it for yourself. Right. They bring up Seneca Village in New York, which we've talked about before. It's one of the lost communities. They talked about Wilmington, North Carolina, as well as Rosewood, which is something we've brought up in this series. Right. Right. And they talk about examples of highways being built through black neighborhoods, such as in Detroit and St. Paul. And, you know, interestingly enough, you know, that's going to be for my random history fact. We're going to talk about Overtown as well, but not right now. Later on, that that is another perfect example. They talk about the story of Mustafa, uh, Mustafa, Mustafa Shaw, excuse me. And I'm not going to I don't want to ruin that because the story is literally it's literally phenomenal. Like I cannot I do not want to ruin that. Right, they they speak on, you know. They speak on the, uh, the act that was created by um, General William Sherman, a field order, and that field order was made to give every black person or family forty acres of confiscated Confederate property, right? President Andrew Johnson, who takes over the presidency after um, Abraham Lincoln gets shot and killed. Rescinds that. So what ends up happening is is that they create something called the Homestead, the Homestead Act. And what the Homestead Act did was it granted 160 acres to white Americans and immigrating Europeans to you know start building homes. 160 acres, which is out of control. It's out of control, right? And what ends up happening is these lands are either lands that were lost in the Confederacy and given back, as well as land that was stolen from the indigenous people of, the, of America, which were Native Americans, naturally, and they stole that land, especially in the, the Trail of Tears, which is something else that we'll talk about in another episode. They said that there is presently 46 million white Americans who still fro- who still profit from the land granted from the act. They talk about the Great Migration which you know, we've discussed. Um, and they also talked about sharecropping, which was really interesting to see how they're they're touching on all of these elements that were put in place to prevent just generational wealth for black America. They talked about redlining, which was a tool that prevented black America from building wealth, and you know, civil rights bills they they got to the nitty-gritty about civil rights bills and you know someone mentioned a historian mentioned that civil rights bills they didn't do anything to assert the rights that black people should have already had well they didn't do anything but that that's all it did it just asserted rights that should have already been had by black americans it didn't it didn't take care of any damage it didn't repair any damage all it did was just say yes These these rights that they should have been had were officially saying that they should have them now, guys, so leave them alone. And it never it still obviously hasn't worked fully to the way that it was supposed to. Right. So interestingly enough, an economist comes on to end the episode and he says that, you know, the federal government, you know, holds the weight to repairing the racial wealth gap. Right. Because the racial wealth gap was created by the federal government, especially during, you know, the Great Depression When, you know, the country had a financial reset, there was a lot of benefits, you know, a lot of recovery efforts that missed African-Americans during that time. Right. And here's the number that was thrown out there. If the racial wealth gap is utilized as a medium to show how much the 40 million descendants of slavery are owed, each individual should be given three hundred and fifty thousand dollars. That's how to make it fair. And that totals out to fourteen trillion dollars. Let that sink in for a second. And that was one of the ways that they ended the episode, which you know, again, I thought was was very powerful. And they they did really good with their introductions. They always did really good with their with their conclusions. And you know, like I said, it was a very well put together documentary series. Highly recommend if you haven't seen any episodes yet. You know, do it at your own pace. You don't have to watch them all right away. You know, you can do one here, two there, one here, or, you know, however you want to pace it. But I do highly advise for everybody, for everybody to take care of that. Take care of, you know, your ability to be able to watch it for sure. All right. So that recaps essentially... Our review of the 1619 Project. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Please, you know, make sure that you guys leave me some feedback. I always love the feedback. And we'll go into our random historical... Not even random, but it's going to be our historical fact today. We're talking about lost communities and, you know, how... These communities were completely left out, right? And one of the towns that we absolutely have to talk about is Overtown. Super important that we talk about Overtown, right? And before it got the name Overtown, we have to realize that it was considered colored town. At some point, right? Now, we have to talk about the name Overtown because a lot of people are going to say that Overtown um, got its name because of the highway that is built over the majority of that community, right? But there's actually a deeper history, right? The name Overtown, right? And I'm going to be quoting this directly from miamiplanning.weebly.com where they break down Overtown very well Right. And they said that the name Overtown comes from the fact that it was located on the other side of the railroad tracks from white communities and people had to go over town to this neighborhood during the Jim Crow era. It was commonly called Colored Town. All right. Now, the neighborhood eventually flourished into a well-defined community with schools, homes, churches and a center of entertainment with theaters, nightclubs, hotels and markets, earning itself yet another nickname known as Southern Harlem. All right and for those of y'all who's ever been to i believe it's called red rooster miami it will say that it does say the harlem of the south somewhere inside of that establishment so i always thought that was really cool now what they did was you know and i'm gonna keep quoting and i'm gonna add more to it right but in 1955 the city of miami planned the construction of expressway that ran through downtown Miami on the edge of residential neighborhoods and through low-value blighted industrial areas as a part of, city, of the city's urban renewal. Right, so you know a year later in 56, 1956, the Interstate Highway Act was passed and the city was funded fully for its construction by the Congress. Unfortunately, by this time, the original plan shifted the plan route of the highway several blocks to the several blocks to the west resulting in countless number of black residents in Overtown displaced from their communities and Overtown's main business district. Right. So it left it devastated. And, you know, these expressways, just to show you how much it built over that community. You know, a lot of times when you're on I-95 and you're going over and you see that sign for Overtown on 95, if you look over to the right, you will see what looks like a high school because it is a high school. That is Booker T Washington High School. That is literally got parts of the school that is under the highway, literally, right? And you know there there's just so much history that has been erased from that. You know, um, I don't know if you guys have seen this movie. There's a movie called One Night in Miami, where it, it chronicles you know the night after Muhammad Ali wins, um, after Muhammad Ali wins the heavyweight champion, the boxing heavyweight championship of the world, and it's and it's him, and he's hanging out with Jim Brown, Malcolm X, as well as Sam Cooke, and, you know, although a good number of it is dramatized, you know, the thing that you got to realize is that it is in Overtown, which is overlooked. It is in Overtown because, you know, in Miami, there's only so many hotels that you could stay in. So there were there were a couple of black hotels that you know Ali and Malcolm X and so on and so forth could stay at. Sam Cooke at the time decided to stay at the Fountain Blue, but even when he stayed at the Fountain Blue, he didn't stay under his name. He used his manager's name to be able to get the room, which was which was kind of crazy, right? Which you know I don't know if that was actually the case for his stay in Miami, but it has been said that he did do that a few times. Um, During his stay. Right. So, you know. I think that if you guys ever have the opportunity to go to Overtown, right, especially, you know, when you have your time and you want to go to Red Rooster, go a little earlier and, you know, go to the Lyric Theater and go to some of these historical areas and, you know, read the information on these places like you are walking, you know, in a place where there is just an abundance of black history. And you don't even know it, right? I'm trying to get the, I'm trying to remember the name of the hotel. Um, And the hotel itself, I believe, is a museum as well. I think the name of it is Hampton House. The Hampton House in Miami. And they have a pretty cool historical display that, you know, you guys can definitely take a look at. They have events. They have tickets for said events. And it's located in the Brownsville neighborhood, which is right next to the Overtown neighborhood. So if you guys ever have the opportunity to go to Hampton House, please do. And, you know, that is our, you know, historical fact of the day. Overtown, how Overtown got its name and how it became what it was. Right. And, uh, you know, for those of y'all who didn't know, you know, now, you know. So hopefully you enjoyed this this episode, man. But we're gonna we're gonna have to wrap that up. You know, we we went over the last two episodes of 1619 projects. So we're officially done with that review. And you guys, you know, learned a little bit about Florida Black History, more importantly, Overtown. So, you know, I'm telling you, Hampton House, Lyric Theater, Red Rooster, you guys have those opportunities to go there. Please, 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 please go enjoy it, take in the Black History, learn a little bit more you know, and that way you can assist us in generating realistic intellectual output together. Almost messed up on that one, but I caught it. (laughs) It's been a while, but we're here. You know what I mean? And per usual, appreciate y'all for listening. Please make sure you guys follow us on Instagram at Grill Talks. You know, the mission is in the name, G-R-I-O-T. Grill Talks, baby where we're generating realistic intellectual output together It's your boy Nels, man. Appreciate y'all for riding with me for a little over 40 minutes. You know, we try to keep it short and sweet, you know, short and sweet and and make sure that it's complete. You know what I mean? So, yeah, keep giving us listens, man. Keep showing us love. Keep giving us the five stars. Keep giving us the juice so we can keep giving y'all, you know, this 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 great content, you know. So we out of here. All love. It's a windy night at a dark time, cruising through the city in my Honda Civic 09, position that you put me in with step-toe and landmines, waiting to implode so I can open up the gold mines mind was never afraid to make an escape don't put a cast on my arm before i'm getting my break i know i made my mistakes but i am raising the stakes so when i'm only finally gone you know i'm making this shape. walking on water like messiah my heart got desires dive inside the lake and you can see a burning fire never take a dollar just to act like i'm a liar feeling like you ate away i'm running through the wire summertime winter time all the time i think about you we could be